0: Dave, back We got him at the jail Well done Woo! folks well done. well done That used up all our reserves though Yeah To get him on parole And a huge, huge amount of bail Yeah All the 40 quid That we didn't have We no longer have anymore So um, Please give us Please top up our funds Our coffers. What What do you think You'd have to do in Scotland For your bail To be set at 40 quid Yeah <laughs> uh,
1: is that low or high? I've never been in jail. Dave knows. What do you have to do in Inverness for your bail to be 40 quid, Dave? Quick, quick, quick. Oh, rename a sheep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, without, uh, without uh, proper registry.
0: Please go to patreon.com forward slash pod where we will add a new category called rename a sheep for $40. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so basically... I don't, I don't know if you guys have realised this, but the world is now fucked. It's been refucked. We thought it was maybe unfucked, but it's now refucked. Things are just going to get harder for a lot of us. So, anything you can give us to make running this podcast a little bit easier, we don't want to make money from it. We just want to break even, and you know we're pretty close to that. So, if you could help us out, that would be super appreciated. Yeah,
1: it turns out we're not very good at the money part of it. Just judging by. Uh, <laughs> how bad we are at turning listeners into funds? Uh, so yeah. help! Help is it? So don't skip this part. You cunt. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, maybe calling people cunts is the way forward.
0: <laughs> but yeah go, like I said it's kind of edgy humour they're here for Dave yeah. <laughs> go to the Afro Messenger URL you can see lots of very cool things we'll give you including a brand new access all areas Facebook group which has got banter-ish stuff on it I don't know all kinds of sheep names all, all kinds of, the place. of sheep names yeah so hit us up on Patreon and join our Facebook group and give us your favourite sheep name Thanks. Time of the week, dang dang! It's a young song podcast, yeah. Hey folks, <laughs> we do welcome. need a theme tune. Remember all those
1: fucking years ago now, where Fritz had made that amazing Nexus theme song. Yeah, we need yes. something bespoke. Yeah, we do. we do. I mean, the one that's in there was really just a placeholder that I made up. Although Mark, did you notice that it had the Nexus from uh, WWE in it? Yeah, <laughs> and I didn't mention that in the wrestling episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do we do need some more bespoke music. I'm happy with the title track, that's great, the Marvin song, but that Nexus needs some
0: Yeah, I mean no Fritz just all listening, so if you want, if you want to think about something else, we would really appreciate that. Yeah, come on, Fritz. When was the last time you gave us a hundred quid and a, a
1: custom written song? <laughs> well, how are you guys this week? You're both well, it's it's nice to be back. Dave stumbled out the bush about five
2: days ago. Yeah. Um, I've, I'm back from walkabout uh, I can't believe that you did a fucking wrestling podcast Not I that you did it without it. me I just can't believe you did it
1: <laughs> It's the kindest thing we've ever done to you Was doing that when you weren't here Well I mean yeah that's true I mean I'm glad that I didn't have to be involved That's for sure but um, Great work I don't take it personally but it was slightly more fun than average <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's gone down a it's fucking tree as well Who was it the The road warrior The road warrior, that road died, warrior or? animal Sixty years old. RIP. Hey, that's pretty.
2: It? That is pretty old for a for, for a, wrestler. a
1: wrestler. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, when Chris Benoit died, we all know that that didn't go very well. Uh, he had the brain of an eighty-four-year-old man.
2: Well, I mean, geez, how how old is he? <laughs> 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 about,
1: was he? would say like late thirties? thirties, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. So is that from getting bashed about? Is that from the steroids? Is that from? Being a maniac Bit of all three yeah.
0: Probably all of all those three. Yeah. Yeah, all, yeah.
1: all three of those Unfortunately, things Unfortunately it was his family that paid the price yes. More so than him mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> There you go Dave That's uh, that's one good reason to keep kids off wrestling So, well, I mean you it's know. lethal <laughs> We can use that against us yeah, but Absolutely a, dangerous f- Like most bad habits we had a fine time doing it last week <laughs> When you <weren't> <laughs>
2: <here>. <laughs> um, We'll try to think of what we could do if if you two are away, what would my podcast be about? <laughs> what would it be about, Dave? Uh, oh God, I don't. Know. Like we've already done new metal, so I'm really thinking about getting into uh,
1: model railways. But <laughs> Rod Stewart's really into model railways. You ever seen is he? That? Nah, Rod but, Rod mean... Stewart has the most incredible model railways. However, it caused a lot of problems because somebody did a big article about it, and they reported him as English pop musician Rod Stewart. <laughs> and the thing is, technically, Rod Stewart is English. He was the only member of his family born in London. Yeah, but I think he very much identifies as a Scotsman. Yeah, so that uh, was problematic. But yeah, he bloody loves a good railway. That lad.
0: well oh, I, I recently seen somebody post on Twitter the the classic uh, clip of Rod Stewart calling the Scottish Football Cup uh, <laughs> teams, throwing them out the hat. Oh uh,
2: yeah, doing the draw. It's yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah. fantastic.
0: So good. And he's, he's steaming.
1: Co- totally, I, t- I told totally. you before he the day that he did that that like, he was there was a game on at Airdrie Stadium just before he did that draw and he was spotted in Airdrie in one of those windowless old man's pubs you know the kind that you get in Scotland where they look like, like bomb shelters yeah. um, and he was in this old man's pub when my friends walked in singing Rod Stewart on karaoke <laughs> <laughs> so Amazing. Anyway, uh, Mark well. this is uh, your choice of music this week um
0: Obviously it was another one A bit like Burial That got postponed But we got round to it Mm -hmm. It's not Rod Stewart Unfortunately It is the Ugly Organ By the Omaha Nebraskan Band Cursive
2: Yeah like This is a funny one Because when you Mentioned cursive I was like oh yeah Cursive I didn't know all about them and then I th- realised that I didn't know f-
1: fucking anything about them <laughs> <laughs> Who did you think it was?
2: I don't know like, I get it mixed up with somebody else but I also just
1: Is a, a Rod Stewart?
2: Yeah uh, yeah. I mean I've, I have seen Cursive do Rod Stewart karaoke in a coat bridge so um, easily <laughs> mixed world. up Small I don't know world. they were just always a band from when I was about 18 to 25 that I knew existed and I think I lived with an emo and he was obsessed with them. And I always remember this album art when I looked at it, but I just, I don't think I've ever listened to them, so I was very
1: surprised by what I heard. I used to gang about with a couple of emos when I was younger. I wasn't, I was—I I don't think I was massively emo myself. I liked a few of them. Obviously I liked Far and stuff like that, the older school stuff, but I ended up going to see Curse of King Tut's in Glasgow and I think it was actually quite a sought after ticket and I was one of those annoying people at a gig that doesn't really care or appreciate what they've got but I was taken along and it was fine it was fine I remember there'd been a lot of brass so it must have been Happy Hollow the album after this yeah Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I was at that show as well see I, I don't particularly like brass in the context of punk because ska is just devil's piss in my ears (laughs) Um, and so i wasn't sure what to make of it but the heavier chunkier bits which i'm sure we'll talk about i I was i was like yeah this is okay but it was just okay i wasn't i wasn't blown away by it and i never went back and listened to them much recreationally what i have noticed though in the course of listening to not just this album but the other albums to try and get a bit of context is that cursive are really sort of like a very useful reference point for loads of the biggest names of the sort of late 90s, early 2000s emo, post-hardcore scene, especially in the American Midwest, so mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of names popping up, uh, and that, for me at least, is probably going to be the bulk of what I can bring to this conversation.
2: Well, I mean, I was very excited to see that uh, one of them was in Smash Mouth. And it turned out it was not a different th- Smash Mouth. Different. So yeah,
1: exactly. I was really let down by that. <laughs> was, I was looking at that, I was like, that's such a tiny Wikipedia entry for a Smash Mouth. And then you realise why. <laughs> Disambiguation.
0: This is not the Smash Mouth that played at Donald Trump's rally. It is not. It is not. So, yeah, I guess we should probably do a wee bit of history about the band Cursive, as Chris says. They're part of that sort of midwestern emo scene um, they were formed in 1995 which, fucking hell man they've been around for so long um, this this album we're going to talk about it was our fourth album that's how I got into them but obviously before that they'd released a bunch of records and EPs sort of front man, I was going to say front man but kind of the brains behind the whole band really there's a guy called Tim Casher uh, and he formed Cursive after his old band Slow Down Virginia broke up It's uh, so the the main core of the lineup has been ostensibly Tim Casher, Matt Magan, and Steve Peterson on guitar, and also Clint Schnasse. Sh- is that how you say something? Sh- Schnasse, Schnasse, yeah, uh, on drums, who's recently came back to the band as well. He left not long after Happy Hollow. It was interesting,
1: like looking at their heritage. I mean, it's going to be really obvious that they came from Omaha, Nebraska, which is also where Connor and therefore Bright Eyes. Disaparacidos and those kind of bands come from and I think it can't be a coincidence that they have some very similar qualities to their sound and even just
3: their
1: themes their approach but Uh, That part of America was quite interesting at the time. Uh, You had, well, these guys were, what, 95? They got together? Yeah. I think. At the Driving had got together in Texas in 94. They got a lot of early comparisons to them. Bands like Shudder to Think. Jawbreaker from New York yeah. uh, And I think a lot of those comparisons are fair uh, There's probably a couple others Like I think there's a fair bit of Husker Du and Sugar Bits of Figazi and bands like Archers of Loaf oh. Um, but in the, the Midwest kind of states, or at least the sort of off-the-beaten-track kind of states, um, you had the likes of Appleseed Cast.
3: Away, away, I have to
1: go. Formed in Kansas in 97. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of those in here. Uh, in Illinois, now I know Illinois is Chicago but it's also a lot of other places as well in Illinois you had uh, the likes of Cap'n Jazz from like 89 followed by Joan of Arc you also had Braid who I think have a, a quite a lot to say in the, the, the music cursive Hurricane, what's the name?
3: of tell it that for me, and never could be. Surely so brings better things and
1: um, you. Be- June of 44 from Kentucky in 94, you had the band called Branston from Ohio in 96, you had The Promise Ring from Wisconsin in 95, then you had a load of other bands that were appearing in the Washington scene, uh, like Smart Went Crazy and Blue Tip and bands like that.
3: But he was only daydreaming about the future without his wife.
1: So it was quite a sort of thickened period for that style, like post-hardcore. Uh, there obviously was a parallel movement that from far went much more in the direction of sort of pop-punk, emo, more commercial, waley, haircut, slick, that kind of thing. This band sit, I think, at the crossroads of, of those two different paths. On the, the album you've chosen, I feel they do get about as close as they were going to get. To some of the more mainstream stuff Yet they never really lose the alternative Sound that probably Kept them on a certain
0: level Yeah so a lot of their history is like yeah, Apart from all the bands you mentioned They were also tied up in As you kind of hinted at like The whole kind of Bright Eyes thing So Saddle Creek Records They didn't they didn't come onto Saddle Creek Records until their second album The Storms of Early Summer Their first album, Such Blinding Stars for Starving Eyes with release of uh, records for,
1: um, for people that are in my sort of position as well mm-hmm. just to kind of help them out because I had to look it up, Saddle Creek if you recognise the name they've also had obviously Disapparacitos, the uh, burst band that we mentioned but uh, Hop Along, Azure Ray Hand Habits, uh, The Good Life which is Casher's other project I would say it's quite a well-known label, but certainly on certain, in certain circles,
0: it's a, a fairly familiar name. Well, that's what's going. To, that's exactly what's going to get onto. So, Saddle Creek P this band. I don't know why it took them so long to get onto that label, but um, they were definitely all in or around, you know, that scene. Uh, Mike Moggis, the guy who who kind of started Saddle Creek with uh, Conor Oberst's brother Justin, he was one of the producers on their first album. So clearly, being in Omaha, being a, being a part of this this particularly large scene for Midwestern emo. Obviously, done quite a lot of favors. Um, some of the bands Chris mentioned there are, are, are kind of the more noble ones that have come out, you know, f- from that record label, from that that part of the world. For some reason, Omaha seems to still and seems to still be quite a um, musical hub for, for the Midwest, even though even if it isn't necessarily something you would uh, you would associate <laughs> with with uh, music if you're not entrenched in this kind of alternative or kind of post hardcore thing that some of us it's, are. It, the Midwest is one of those regions
1: that. A bit like parts of Europe, there, there, there aren't so many parts of it where you really feel that if you break through, you can go there and get success. You know, it's a bit like London in the UK, that used to be that old trope. But New York, LA, even, you know, parts of Texas, or Chicago, I suppose, is probably their closest point. But you imagine there's just loads and loads of bands that pop into existence and then drop out of existence and never quite get a look in, because it's such a vast terrain
2: well, I mean, it's literally, yeah, it's so far from anywhere else. You yeah. know, it's miles and miles and miles of um, cornfields and wheat fields and stuff like that. So for a young band, if you grow up in LA, then you can go and play 20 venues within a month, within 100 miles and never play at the same person. Whereas in Nebraska, you can travel 100 miles and not see a venue.
1: Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think it's, it always kind of pops into my head when I think about it, even just analogously Scotland, there's parts of Scotland where you know there was bands appeared that could have done something, maybe had one or two very good songs and then just vanished again and multiply that by a hundred for these huge expansive parts of the USA and for other countries as well where these bands never really quite play to the right audiences or get a chance to attain that momentum. It's, it's quite staggering to think about how many truly amazing tunes even, forget albums but just amazing songs that probably never really
0: got heard and that that kind of speaks to this whole idea of how those bands are often said to have the omaha sound which is a huge thing right of course i've been an instrumental part in that saddle creek being a a, a key driver in, in a, and from an indie point of view as well you know um and yeah it's it's it is interesting how these kind of parts of the world can how, how the kind of the dereliction around it brings people together into the one place you know, Curse have kind of come from such rich stock in that regard, you know, that they, they're all all openly uh, admitted they're middle class boys who kind of grew up in Catholic households, just kind of very much from this little part of the world and a lot of people who, who they knew had similar interests in, in music as they did and it kind of led to this expansive sort of clutch of bands and the Ugly Organ so, is seen as being a part of, of this scene, which we'll, which we'll get to in a wee sec.
1: Yeah, I mean just to kinda do their prehistory was it ninety six their first record came out, which by the way has that archetypal style of your first E P in a band it's called Disruption. Yeah. The Disruption E P just Dave I'm pretty sure your high school band probably had a record called the Disruption EP yeah most likely um, <laughs> 97 the Sucker and Dry EP uh, then their debut album in 97 was uh, Such Blinding Stars for Starving Eyes Uh, followed by the Icebreaker EP in 98. And then, we'll we'll talk about the early records, but just in 98 the band basically split. Tim Casher got married and moved to Portland, Oregon and Steve Pedersen, one of the founder members and one of the guys from Slowdown, Virginia decided to go to law school. Luckily, uh, Tim Casher's marriage was a disaster. (laughs) He got divorced a year later, moved back and they resumed the band, uh, at which point Pedersen was replaced by Ted Stevens, who then went on to be in the band indefinitely, uh, at, just before they broke up, I know they released uh, what they thought was going to be their swan song. It's called uh, the Storms of Early Summer: Colon Semantics of Song, mm-hmm. some proper late nineties emo titling. Yep. Um, just on those records, did you spend much time with them? Because they, I mean, to me, immediately they sound like the kind of thing I would have heard at the Thirteenth Note in the Thirteenth Notes heyday when it had all these sort of Midwest. Any of the bands for the states that got over here almost always played at the thirteenth note in <coughs> Glasgow. They were that it was that kind of sound. That's where I saw Appleseed Cast in fact first time.
0: I hadn't really spent any time with these two records because I kind of got into them with the Ugly Organ and, and and my knowledge of them. Didn't? I Wasn't actually. I kind of fell out with them quite quickly when. Uh, Two thousand My Mama Swollen came out, but we'll come to that. So I was, it was quite good to get acquainted with these two albums. Um, they definitely have a kind of fugazi, arches of loaf sort of vibe to them, you know, which mm. is quite stark given that the Ugly Organ sounds. I wouldn't say vastly different, but an approach sonically, even songwriting wise, there's a huge difference. There's a gulf, in fact, I would say. And just yeah. in terms, I think the cursive and at the driving sound.
2: Very similar yeah. mid 90s, like those first couple of like demos and records, and the vocals are kind of an afterthought to the energy. And then the vocals become much more important for both bands, and like they go down different routes. But it's interesting hearing how s- similar they are, you know, in those first couple of recordings.
1: Um, I think that's really true. Yeah, I'd, I'd made a note as well that. Especially in the first one, Such Blinding Stars I really feel that the, the driving comparisons are fair on that one It's that very angsty, earnest, emo sound Musically it's quite basic, it does a lot of like, loud, quiet shifts yeah. um, There's a couple of like very uh, subtle, diminished moments In things like the track Ceiling's Crack Mm-hmm. and that's where I think you start to hear the very earliest sort of peaks of some of the more dissonant stuff they'll do later on but other than that it's it's quite straight down the line emo of that era uh, and the storms of early summer or the storm of early summer I can I think you can actually hear quite a lot of the sound that went on to become synonymous with Um I think there's a track called the uh, the rhyme scheme. In fact, it's the fact's first track. Yeah, it, good has, song. it has quite a bit of that in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, fairly typical of that late nineties emo sound. Uh, you heard a lot of these kind of bands on things like Jade Tree and Deep Elm. Those sort of like cult post-hardcore, indie hardcore record labels. Um, I mean, it's it's. It's acceptable stuff, it's not bad, Uh, but they they were certainly a band that was going to, as Dave says, get a much stronger sense of identity and maybe go in a much more sophisticated direction all round. uh, I agree on the vocals, but also just musically they decided to spend much more time focusing on what exactly they wanted to achieve with these different parts. And yeah, they definitely carved out a very distinct...
0: Uh, niche for themselves and then after that they moved on to uh, 2002 with Curse of Domestica, which is the actual title of the album
3: This is one The birth of a child
1: Can we just say that this is emo and emo guys rearing their ugly heads in a big way, right? Because they released the album *Domestica*, which is a bunny ears, inverted commas, concept album mm-hmm. about the dissolution of a marriage. I wonder where, <laughs> that, I wonder where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The year after his disastrous marriage fell apart. I, I think, like, it just underlines how fucking self-serving emo is and how emo guys can just be such a nightmare. I think one thing about it that kind of sat... Badly with me as well Is that on this concept album One of the themes is infidelity uh, of, of the woman, And it, that wasn't actually part of their marriage That wasn't an issue And whilst I know he's saying That it's not directly about their marriage You know, people put two and two together And it's sort of a little bit clumsy Just after your marriage broke up To start singing about your ex-wife Having been unfaithful It's, mm-hmm. it's like, come on man Think about it, Like, it's so
0: self-indulgent to the detriment of the other person. I mean, that's, it's kind of lame. One of his best pals is no doubt, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say definitely his, his best pal, but one of his friends is no doubt Conroy Baird, who's, you know, the king of this kind of shit. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, this album was held in really high regard by fans. Really well reviewed when yep. it came out as well. Yeah. To be honest, for me, it never quite hits the mark. I can see where they're going. I can see the evolution in the songwriting. Uh, there are some good songs on it. The Martyr is a really good song also quite like a Red So Deep and the Lament of Pretty Baby I think are both pretty good songs And can I throw a couple of references in yeah, as well man? Sure, man. Um, I think the first track The Casualty
1: is so uh, reminiscent of Quicksand well yes. Rifles band yeah. mm-hmm. um, I think not just in the kind of way that they start to get a bit chunkier you know they get a bit more staccato in their, in their playing but also just in the choice of like broken down chords that they go into uh, and also the third track in that Shallow Means Deep Ends it has a bit of the quicksand but it also really reminds me of the band Blue Tip that I mentioned earlier That sort of like cheekiness to it, uh, the way the the vocals are delivered in it. It's also it's just generally just a bit angrier, and that that staccato theme is something that I think they picked up from other bands of that time and mm-hmm. just slightly before. I think they've been inspired, shall we say, by by
0: that approach. So uh, the following year, they released an EP called Burst and
3: 90s <laughs> The from Some are like disease
0: they Which is when uh, Greta Cohn, cello player uh, who had been playing with him for a number of years at this point live but hadn't actually recorded with him then came into the fold kind of properly as, as a contributor and as a player on the records and this is when you can see the moves towards the sound of the ugly organ uh, I think this is a really good EP I quite like this Sync to the Beat is, is probably the highlight for that the cello is quite stark in it. It's a totally new vibe. You can imagine fans of the band being like, "What the fuck is this? What's going on mm-hmm. here?" You know, um, the, cello, the cello
1: edition definitely expands their palette
0: significantly. Absolutely. In fact, it puts them just even
1: conceptually into a, a whole new area of that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going from being just guitar, guitar, bass, drums. I will say one of the bands that I think they have a bit in common with sonically, Smart went crazy. Also used the cello. Um, is it in two thousand and two? During the tour, the, the, uh, got had a collapsed lung, didn't he? Yeah. And the the, the whole tour got cancelled. That's part of why they were able to spend so much time working and writing on the, the Ugly Organ, uh, because of that collapsed lung. Is he a really thin guy? Because, I mean, in my experience, like, collapsed lungs are really associated with people that are very, very underweight. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Um, so... Obviously, Ugly Organ, you're going to talk about at length, so we'll just bounce straight past that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting, without giving too much away, that they announced a pretty, well, an indefinite, but certainly a lengthy hiatus right off the back of what was by far the most commercially successful. Uh, and critically successful moment I mm. that at that point though Kesha refocused on that other band he's in the good life the good life, thing, life yeah
0: and they released an this album called Al Madero which is really good
3: she was convinced I was under the influence of all those drunken romantics I was reading Fonte at the time I had Bukowski on album mind
1: Yeah, 2004, that that was a critical success as well, so he wanted to devote some proper time to that. And at that point as well, did uh, Clint, Schnasser and Matt McGinn not start touring with Bright
0: Eyes? Yeah, yeah. and then Greta Cod moved back to New York and she's actually, in recent times, she's actually been uh, involved in podcasting, podcast producer and stuff like that which is pretty cool the story the story about how she came out of the band is actually really interesting I don't know if you know it but she obviously lived in New York and she got a phone call or like our parents got a phone call from Ted Stevens and there were like some cowboys trying to talk to you on the phone we don't know what it's all about maybe she should call them back and the, the guy was saying do you want to come and, and play with us and she was like I just, I just quit the band I was in and I wanted an adventure so I just fucked off with Cursor for five years and had a great time so it was pretty cool Uh, They released a compilation album in 2005
1: The Difference Between Houses and Homes Mm -hmm. and then 2006 that hiatus was I guess officially over when Happy Hollow came out Um, I mean they replaced the cello at this point With a five piece horn section And there's a bit of electronics in there as well isn't
0: there Yeah there is um, And this is the album that I almost picked Funnily enough I remember you mentioning it yeah Because this is the I heard the Organ And then they went in the hiatus And then suddenly it was not a very long hiatus Because it was only three years between albums When this came out And this is when I see them live as well I, I actually found myself being quite enamoured with this record I think it's got a lot of really strong songs on it The uh, production's b- a lot bigger Oh yeah, yeah it's, it's very polished Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it—it's it, almost. I was
0: trying to think of a way to
1: describe it. Um, that production married with that kind of proggy pop punk thing that they're doing it. I think it sounds like so, sort of like Wheatus meets Sparks or something like that. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's still quite adventurous, but because it's so slickly produced, there's something a little bit too shiny about it for me. I, I couldn't quite get past that.
2: I kind of—I know that there's like an irony in it both with the artwork and production values because the whole thing is a concept album of like a upper class god-fearing town but it's got that sort of David Lynch you know there is poison under the beneath the surface so I appreciate it but I just it didn't grab me at all because I liked the sort of grittier production.
1: Yeah, I felt like, it, cerebrally, I was like, oh, this is actually a very strong start, especially, but I couldn't get any real emotional connection to to the record itself. I did, there were a couple of bits. I mean, track four not Bad Sects.
3: Last week, a boy, I back in town with a new ideology. Those feelings I
1: Mm-hmm. good name uh, has has actually some weird Beck vibes in the delivery mm-hmm. albeit a bit more guitar Uh and I really liked this, the beginning of an appearance of a lot of Les Savvy Fav sounds I'm a big Lizzy, I'm a big, Lizzy. <laughs> I'm a big Les Savvy Fav fan and I think that
0: approach works well with them albeit it is quite clearly a Les Savvy Fav approach mm-hmm. I quite enjoyed how it was big and bombastic after which, after coming after the ugly organ, is the complete opposite thing, thing to do, and also probably what not what anybody would have expected them to do replacing the, horn, the, orga, the the cello and the organ with a horn section. Pretty ballsy move, especially after they just had, by in relative terms, particularly when you think about Saddle Creek being an indie record label, what could probably be considered a smash hit. You know, because Ugly Organ, Ugly Organs sold 170,000 copies, which was massive for that label and probably still one of the biggest things they'd, they'd sold outside of, outside of Bright Eyes. And Dorothy at 40 was the song that I first heard. I think it was the first, the first single, maybe. I can't remember. Dreams but that, that hooked it me was, that hooked me for that record Ted Stevens sings in a few songs as well Big Bang is pretty cool and Bad Science as well where his voice is kind of his voice is totally different from Tim's which I also, also quite liked Dead. But I can totally understand why you guys would, would find it hard to connect with it because it is very, it does feel very pristine. Like, yeah, I mean, to- you're it, emo, pop punk, all that kind of
1: like wider sphere. Some people just can, some people just cannot click with the choices that those bands make musically and I've just always found it very hard to, to to find a song really catchy without certain dynamics in the songwriting and it's just not something that these bands tend to go into and Cursever are one of those bands for me um, 2009, the worst named album that we've covered in a long time, Yep, Mama I'm Swollen hard, I like as well <laughs> I mean, man Mama, it's like a Frank Zappa album. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, this was the first time they appeared in David Letterman. They were they, their longevity was starting to get them a but a, a, a lot of kudos as well. You know, they weren't just a flash in the pan. Clearly, a couple of tracks in that. With uh, again in the now, that first one has a lot of less savvy fab feels in it. From the Hips uh, which uh, is only the second one as well feels much more confident I think the, the mm. whole approach of the band at this point just feels more confident there's a falsetto vocal in it that again has a bits of Tim from uh, Les Ave 5 I'm at
3: my best when I'm trying to look and think sing talking singing reading write like all the rest we're all just trying to play our roles in a play that runs at nauseam
1: and I think that's, that's almost a tune That I could have imagined
0: on something like Root for Ruin uh, I think it's one of, one of their better moments From this era Yeah, this album for me is quite hard to like Maybe, maybe there's a reason these guys kept going hiatuses Because it, I feel as though maybe Tim Was too, too focused on other things at this point I don't think the song rating's as good as it has been Mama, I'm Satan's okay And What Have I Done Six minutes long that song is It's pretty good too then the world the
3: passed me by was telling everyone back home that I was But
0: well, for me it just kind of washes washed over me and then at this point I was like I'm done with this band I'm out <laughs> So I stopped yeah, they, I stopped listening to them after this You do start getting the diminishing returns thing don't The you? um Clint
2: left the band had not he uh, yeah. yeah So yeah. this is his first their first without Clint and I mean you can kind of tell that they're not doing as interesting stuff
1: they, they released I Am Gemini in two thousand and twelve, bit chunkier, but also a bit generic. So, I,
3: wave my I have set my snakeskin
1: <laughs> there's a track yeah on
2: that. I, I uh, thought it sounded like Senses Fail I was like oh no <laughs> yeah,
1: there's, there's a tune in that called Warmer Warmer that reminds me of like, an emo version of They Might Be Giants and I, I couldn't get behind that <laughs>
3: you gotta wish you
0: Um, was like, like there's a couple of Some decent songs on it. Uh, the Sun and the Moon is pretty cool. Um, Drunken Bird is alright as well. But nah, nothing to write home about. Not at all, really. I take it they mean bird as in a bird because Drunken Bird over here has a completely different connotation. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> uh, Vitriola in 2018. Uh, that fucking first track name, Free to Be or Not to Be You and Me. I mean, it, it's um, it's actually, I, I didn't think this was the worst, man. I mean, yeah. it, good, it's kind of dark, interesting proggy post-hardcore. Mm-hmm. There's bits of alt rock. There's some decent bits of electronics and atmospherics in it. It feels like um, it's picked I up think, the energy a little bit that they were missing well, the last couple of records. Oh, it's interesting mm-hmm. because. Clint came back for this one and I think there is a little sense of them being a wee bit reinvigorated it's closer closer to the kind of alt-indie uh, and not that earnest post-hardcore of the late 90s at all anymore really I can't hear much of
0: that yeah and then the cello they, they, and they organ and keys in it and like everything all of it's on this everything they've done at this point is, is, a touch, is touched upon in this record which is pretty clever I think
1: yeah and, and to illustrate as well them being somewhat revitalised they released another album the year after which is for them quite prolific Get mm-hmm. Fixed in 2019 I don't know maybe the other projects they've been working on were less intrusive at this point Um, this album actually summoned a band that I've not mentioned yet but I think are quite relevant to that sound uh, Pinback it's like a slightly chunkier version of them I do think Pinback are a better band overall uh, but this has nods to them. Um, the bass is a lot higher in the mix in this one as well, so the whole record feels a wee bit heavier. Um, I thought the track, the third track in on this one, I Am Goddamn, is it's probably the, the most enjoyable standout yeah. on the record. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Stranded Satellite's pretty good as well.
2: I think these were written and recorded mostly during the Vitriola sessions, and I think I read somewhere that they had thought about releasing a double album. So uh, thank fuck they didn't do that. I'd rather two two alright records than one big bloated shit record we should should do an episode on double albums because I mean are
1: there any good ones Melancholy and Infinite Sadness game over I win (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, they're, they're an interesting band, we'll, we'll obviously go into it in a bit more depth for this album you've chosen. I think I want to mention how much their approach, not just their approach, but all the bands we're touching on uh, in conjunction as well, uh, really seem to have influenced certain scenes and we've done an episode about the Dundee scene in Scotland, right, yeah, it's kind of peak between 2000-2005, that sort of era up there, of really inventive, unusual post-hardcore bands, maybe just a few years behind the curve with their American counterparts, but probably probably because they were hearing a lot of these groups and I think Cursive were one of the bands that seem to have left a bit of a mark in that scene you can hear them in the bands of that era like Venetian Love Triangle, Mercury Tilt Switch Katie Bar the Door and even some of the early little stuff uh, that willingness to experiment Starting with post-hardcore, but then throwing other ingredients in there and, and making some kind of fusion food from it. That seems to have really taken up there in particular. And I hear, when I was listening through the back catalogue, I could hear a lot of those, and it was quite nostalgic in its own way. Uh, even though I don't think many of the cursive songs really jump out at me, I do overall like the the aesthetic. It's not lazy, let's put it that way. It's It's trying stuff. I don't think it always succeeds, but it's trying stuff.
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing that I also find quite i a numbering about Tim, is that he, he does that, you know, he, he's not afraid to explore the muse and go wherever it takes him. If it doesn't fit for this record or this band, he'll do a solo record or he'll do a Good Life album. And I like that, you know, I like a musician that takes chances and it does, I do find that quite an endearing quality as well. I think that Cursive are more miss than hit, like over the piece, but... Mm-hmm. I think that's. I think the record, the Ugly Organ, is by far and away their magnum opus, if you want to put it that way. I suppose it's the it's the the one that
1: if people are like, oh, I've heard of that one. You know, when you mm. start seeing, do you know any cursive records? Oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, but it's like also it's the also
2: the one that, like, I don't I don't think we could have really chosen any other one for be you know for being unsung mm. in their discography. I think. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll talk pl- about it pretty but close
1: to Happy Hollow. Didn't yeah, it? maybe. Yeah. But, um, no, but I mean I agree, and I mean 170,000. It was their biggest album, but it's not exactly explosively huge. For 2003, you know, Lincoln Park was selling was it how many million? Probably 130
0: million. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I mean, well, it's, I mean, it's th- this was the first still album. A I'd big to it, era. So.
1: so well, let's let's talk about it. Mark let's talk about it Uh, their fourth album got four stars on Rolling Stone 170,000 sales concept album about art music and how like song and the singer and the music of the audience all impact upon each other in a kind of reflexive way Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah this was the first full album after the addition of Cello uh, which widened the scope of their sound considerably but can we just as well make clear that to disambiguate, we are talking about the original release, which is
0: shorter than the re release. Although, I would like to talk about a couple of songs on the re release because the eight to EU by which is a, a sort of spluttered by a Japanese band, uh, a couple of songs that are pretty good, but we'll come to that at the end. Chris has just done the history, so let's just dive in. I suppose the ugly organist that opens with like this cool wee intro. I guess this is the the protagonist of of the concept album. Um, I quite enjoy this because it sets the atmosphere and the tone, not just for the whole album. Well, for the whole album, yeah. But it also takes us in a new direction for cursive. This is like, what the fuck is this? Tim's playing the the the, the organ on this record, which is, is um- ugly. Um, I don't know, actually. <laughs> That's subjective. <laughs> That's subjective. Join us next week once we've spent a wee while leafing through pictures. From- which is a thing you hadn't done before on, on an album, which is pretty cool. Um, and then we go right into Red Handy's handy of fans. A
3: couple hymns confession recognize
0: Opening. Some some um, red-handed sleight of hand. Oh, sorry. Least. Some yeah. I always <laughs> call it red-handed sleight of hand. Some red-handed sleight of hand. Yeah. Uh, really strong. Loads openness. of cello on it. Yeah, yeah loads, loads of, of cello. Uh, some of it's overdriven a little bit, a little bit distorted, which is nice. The production here is like light years ahead of anything that's come before like mm-hmm. right off the bat you can tell like it's much more confident it's more assured everything's cleaner i don't know if you guys had listened to the original and, and the reissue but the reissue has kind of rebalanced some of the guitars the cello and um, the cello l- pops out a lot more but the cello and the keys add a really whole brand granular recursive and um, if, if this is the first time you've come into cursive and you try and go back to listen to the other stuff like i did there is definitely something missing because there is fundamentally instruments <laughs> are not there um, and yeah. This is quite quite poppy, and it, it immediately sounds potentially sellable, knowing
1: what was going on at the time as well, but even just in, in any circumstance, it's accessible, it follows a lot of the sort of melodic patterns and habits of pop punk. I don't love it. But, you know, I can, I can acknowledge how well realised it is as a song and it kind of marries that very emo vocal to little bits of the At The
0: driving eccentricity. It kind of gets that balance fairly well. Yeah, his voice is so much better in this song as well than it has been in any other record. Yeah, hopefully. this is
2: like... I
0: think Jimmy Eat World did that as well.
2: Like, remember the first couple of Jimmy Eat World records, the vocals were very understated and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden they were just, like, polished and uh, and kind of sparkling and very expressive... That's what cursive did here. Mm-hmm. Can I? I just want to talk about my first impression of this because this is the first proper track on the record, and I was quite taken aback by how off my expectations were. For some reason, maybe it's just because the artwork or because they're on Saddle Creek, I always thought that they were going to be like fucking Modest Mouse or Arcade Fire or something like that. And then this comes in, and it's just—it's way more pop punk than I thought it was going to be. And immediately I was like, oh, "Oh, holy shit! It sounds like Thursday with violins, <laughs> um, well, cello." And we haven't talked about them at all, but like, I, I think throughout the record they sound an awful lot like Murder by Death. You think you suffered? Well, you're in the
3: sea yeah, yeah, the pain won't settle for long
2: whose second album came out in 2003 as well I think and like they're a sort of indie rock band with a cello I'd yeah well, I'll, I'll talk about my overall thoughts about the record but I was just like so taken aback by how
1: pop punky it was um, you said they, they segue pretty smoothly into that Art is Hard that third track Mark mm-hmm. It's well chosen in the sense that they kick it off with a a very slightly oddly timed riff and it's to avoid any people like David for example arriving at the party and being like oh this is what this band do, they're trying to keep their options open I think at
0: early stages of this record and that's probably a, a, a pretty savvy idea. I like that it's a little discordant They've been playing with it for a while And it's good to hear it in a, a more polished packaging When the, the cello and the mix is, is pretty huge And I think the melody in this song Is probably one of the strongest And, and it was definitely one of the strongest in their career at this point If not overall um, It's it's quite catchy The chorus is really really cool, I like it uh, And the the bridge, the wee bit that they do in Between the chorus and the verse is, is quite It's quite snazzy as well
1: uh, Funny That Dave mentioned expecting Modest Mouse because the fourth track in it, The Recluse, is Modest Mouse. It is. It's like a punk modest mouse The guitar riff though is just I, Everything about it, the, the way it's played The tone, everything, it's, it's so Modest Mouse mm-hmm. of that of that time um, That lo-fi indie Emo that I was talking about I mean Johnny Marr ended up playing with Modest Mouse didn't he so.
0: Yeah it's true I quite like the melody and structure of that song though The female backing vocal's quite nice and it keeps di- dipping in and out of different grooves and textures I know nothing about Modest Mouse I've never listened to them so uh. if you like a song you'd love Modest Mouse early on <laughs> The Moon in Antarctica
1: those kind of albums yeah you'd love that
0: Just like one of the most uh, listened to songs on Spotify as
1: well. Probably Modest Mouse fans. <laughs> um Track 5, Harold Frankenstein's just this little, little in our yeah. And then it goes into track 6, Butcher the Song. No, that's not fair. No, that's just obscene. I'll stop speaking for you if you stop
3: speaking
1: this actually starts to get pretty interesting for me at this point because this song sounds like the paper chase and I fucking love the paper chase mm-hmm. and what we're seeing is a pattern of this band sounding like other bands and I think at this stage I was aware in my notes I was like am I just engaging in really lazy journalism here Uh or does yes. this band or does this band sound a lot like these bands? so I think to try and answer that for myself, I was trying to look at the chronology of the bands that were using as reference points, and I think, for example, with the paper chase, hide the kitchen knives, the era of paper chase that this sounds most like arguably was the year before this album was written. And I think there is no way that the paper chase didn't impact upon his uh, musical consciousness mm-hmm. when, you, when you hear this. The, the kind of ugly, oddball use of the cello in this mm. really adds to the butcher, murder, sinister atmosphere that's hinted to in the title the very soft, creepy vocals that quickly rise up into these Yelps. They're not really sung, they're kinda of deliberately yelped. Uh it's very John Congleton, the diminished use of notes in the verses, uh the heavier guitar sound. It's a really big nod to paper chase. And so I was like, I was thinking to myself, am I going to be saying oh this band sound like just other bands? And that's a that's a redundant observation because they are their own thing. But as I hopefully bring together in my summary here, I don't think there's any way you can get away from the fact that this band sound very often like big chunks of other very, very good bands. And sort of their own identity sometimes gets a little bit subsumed. That's my takeaway at this stage. And I think it's, I don't know how you guys feel about this particular song, but I think it's,
0: it's upheld by the next one as well. I like this uh, song. Um, I love the ebb and flow of it. I think the loud bits are pretty nasty feeling, like you said. It's quite jagged, and the cello is kind of odd. It gives it a kind of darkness. It kind of reminded me of Tom Waits, to be honest, a little bit. That's something, though,
1: if you've spent much time with the paper chase, that they, they absolutely have. They're, they're like an emo version of Tom Waits and, and, and a lot of their stuff, especially that sort of knife chase, meal variations, blood money era Tom Waits.
2: Yeah, it's also something, I'll reference him again as Murder by Death, has that sort of whiskey-soaked saloon bar Vibe
1: to it. Mm-hmm. It's quite, it's, it's weirdly noirish uh, in its own way. Yeah, A little well. bit of horror movie sort of hints. Uh, the seventh one, Drift with the Fairy Tale, I think the vocals are pretty strong in that one. What I do think is, that it starts to become obvious that, for me, for my personal tastes, this album picks up halfway, quite significantly. I think the second half of it is considerably better than the first half. Which is funnily, again. funnily
2: enough, the Pitchfork review said the exact opposite. <laughs> Going on brand there by disagreeing precisely <laughs> with Pitchfork. Chris. But I didn't, I
1: didn't even know that, so I'm glad that my natural instincts are, are accurate. But the, the, the eighth one, a gentleman caller, uh, again back into Paper Chase territory, very angular. <laughs> Cello, wor- yeah. yeah, cello works really well in it. Mm-hmm. Nicely layered up. Um, it's feedback for me the, the most. Man, I love that shit. Like, the, well, the yeah, I was going to say, mm-hmm. loads of energy, a bit of frenzy in this song. It's the most interesting song I think that so far, and it's not exactly catchy, but I do really like their
0: musical approach on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the tortured horns and the cello. The, the way the cello echoes the main riff when it gets heavy is. Really cool twist, man, and I have no reference for those other bands that you've mentioned. I've not listened to them. Have you not spent time with Paper T. Not that much. I've heard some stuff, uh, but not the stuff. I well, would, so not the stuff I would, would kind of recognise alongside this.
1: So, Hide the Kitchen Knives is an album that I have already decided I'm bringing to this for a future episode. So I'll speed that up a wee bit because it's uh, it's phenomenal. It's it's this, but much much darker, mm-hmm. um, and I would say with very slightly stronger hooks, but. You know, we'll,
0: we'll get there. So how the next track is Harold Weatherbane. <laughs>
1: really theatrical delivery on it. I really, I like the use of the bell on this one. Yeah, it's really cool, isn't it? That's great. It's a really good ingredient. I don't know who had that moment of inspiration in the studio, but, uh,
0: you know, buy them a pint. Apparently, Uh, um, just to give a a bit of context on the the sort of oral history of this record, Tim Casher comes in with full songs, Apart, well, the bones of songs, but apparently Ted Stevens was really the one who was responsible for sort of bringing this whole thing together as a cohesive Kind of thing. That yeah,
1: the p- album concepts. He he ties them in. Doesn't yeah, he, so that he, was probably, of, his probably his idea.
0: It's probably his idea. It's
1: also. I think I'm pretty sure it's got a street sample. That's like a sort of field recording, street sample in the background of it of someone walking. Either that, or I was just losing my mind. He
0: probably does actually because they're trying to go for a, a, a kind of creepy vibe. I like the way everything sits in the mix in this song. Um, the cello it echoes the guitar again. It's really loud in the mix, and it, and because of that, the guitars can kind of go off and do kind of cool and interesting things. It kind of feels like it's half a song because it's got that outro of just the uh, organist doing unselling organy things.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the structure's interesting. I, the the died, I think it's died guitar. It's, it's certainly very dry. That that wee motif, the tonal motif, is is pretty cool. And I think they do get a nice blend of theatre and punk rock in this one. And it's probably the most successful experiment. On the album, Um
0: track ten, bloody murder. Yeah, bloody murderer. Let's say murderer. Is it murderer? Is it murderer. Is it murderer? I, I've written murderer. Maybe. I, maybe it's bloody just... murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Thought that, yeah. Uh, there we go.
1: Let's say that again in Scottish. Bloody, bloody Murderer murder. Bloody murderer.
0: Murder. <laughs> um I, I love how it just sounds. It just like it's this song. Just sounds like clattering to me. It's like they're all in separate rooms, playing slightly different you know, tone at a time with different it's tones. It's anti-rock. Like, yeah. yeah, that's the
1: thing. It, it's anti-rock, man. It starts with like a trademark sort of anti-rock, US maple type deconstructionalist thing. It's just yeah, deliberately awkward. More bells in it as well. Uh, <laughs> Got Jenny I Lewis from Rilo Kiley on it.
2: I right. think she, she appears on a few tracks. It, yeah. yeah, it it's, sounds like everybody in the studio is just gone, let's get fuck about. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's, it's an interesting arrangement. That's maybe a, a euphemism, but uh, it's nasty, but I, d- I think it avoids sounding derivative. Uh, and again, I don't think the the tune, the melody, the, the, you know the memorability factor for me is not high in terms of singing it to yourself, but it's a really cool... Set of ideas And it's it's ambitious And I like that part of it So it's a bit more cerebral Than anything else Sierra The 11th track
0: Yeah More kind of straight ahead Kind of back to a More kind of standard vibe I think I like the driving yeah. nature of it
1: yeah it's it's got a kind of ambitious emo with a twist feel to it um and the best song on the album the
0: best exactly. song on the album yeah it's like Stayin it's alive. almost like a post rock song what a fucking great song! It's so good. Like, huge. It, how many minutes long is it? Ten, 10 and a half yeah, minutes long. Ten minutes. Yeah. It's
1: fucking big, experimental, proggy, ending. Uh, It's got loads of interesting dynamics on it There's a terrific, big, tuneful moment About 2 minutes 55 Mm -hmm. uh, That is just really fucking well done It's by far the best moment of melody in the whole record Uh, And the way the song finishes as well is so delicate and, as you say, quite post-rocky. It's actually quite annoying That they can do that so well And that they don't choose to do it more often Um, I think it's a really, really good song Mm -hmm. Uh, And probably, if I'm perfectly honest The only one I would go back and listen to Recreationally
0: (laughs) It is an annoying way to end the record Because it's like you could have done that before And more of that But you know, I like this record's ambition I like that it's weird I like that it sold so many fucking copies Despite the fact that it is a deeply strange record For the time And for the people that they're associated with and yeah, they were surfing a wave, though. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of bands selling big, big amounts. They thought that Saddle Creek were not going to put it out for them because they thought it was too strange. You know, they, they had a lot of reservations about, about the release of the record and they didn't think it would do particularly well. So when it sold as much as it did, they were all like, what the fuck is going on here? How did this happen? Um, and I think that's a pretty cool story as well. So my rundown on it, my rundown on them,
1: I think they're actually quite a cool, certainly a really ambitious group. Uh, I think they, as I said about Dundee, I think they impacted upon a lot of people's consciousness and a lot of scenes and I think my core realisation is that at their best uh, they have a really really interesting sound that is distinctly cursive but I think over the balance and also specifically at a number of points in this album they too often sound like a jumble of bits of of other really, really good bands, and just as I said, trying to weigh up if that was just me being lazy as a journalist. I, I think chronologically, that's sort of evidenced by the fact that a lot of these bands had made really standout records in the year or two years prior to their flavour suddenly appearing in cursive. Now, I'm not saying cursive were going about ripping people off, but I think those elements were just sticking, but then not being, not. Being uh, infused into the songwriting as much, they were sort of still too lumpy. You know, they needed they needed to get them in there, and they needed to blend them, and they, they needed to blend it, not just have big chunks at uh, the drive-in carrot and big chunks of Liz savvy fav potato hanging about. It's just like <laughs> it, it needed to be better, better mixed. I think I can't wait to try yeah. a soup. <laughs> yeah, I can make sure it was vegan. Just even in my analogy for you, David, um, I think. No, I, I can't. I can't complete a soup analogy, can I? I, I just um, the melting pot versus the mixing bowl, isn't it? It's The old racial analogy. Well, yeah. Right? Exactly. I would have rather that been a melting pot, but it's a bit of a mixing <laughs> bowl. And a lot of croutons. I I find this
2: record hard to love, even though it has a lot of ingredients that I I totally appreciate. But to me, it kind of has a quite sort of indie darling vibe to it, and I think it's maybe a better product than it is a album to listen to Mm -hmm. I think it's if you come from a hardcore background I think it's more expansive and indie than you're used to but if you come from an indie background it's like maybe just provides a little bit of aggressiveness and wonk that you might be taken aback by and enjoy but I, I think in terms of the production the artwork the name the sound it works really well but I just I don't think it has enough good songs on it um I can see why it's very influential because I think you go, oh, I really liked what Cursive did going deep on it you're like oh there's not actually as many parts in it that i enjoy but i feel like it do you kind of get what i mean it leaves more of an impression than it actually deserves maybe
1: yeah it's like i was saying the structures i get i really when i'm listening to them, like oh they've done a really good job of that they've done a really good job of that but at no point have i been able to sit and hum one of their songs it's not left any real like mark on my psyche in that sense they they occupy a space and it's very well realized but it, it, it doesn't Sort of jump out musically. I, I would just say as well, in terms of my verdict, I think in the big scheme of our discography of unsung albums there's going to be a lot of bands that we've mentioned in this discussion in there uh, I don't think it needs to be absolutely overloaded with every alternative emo and post-hardcore band that came about and whilst I think Hursriff did some really impressive stuff and I'm sure loads of people will be raging because this album is a bit of an indie darling album, uh, it doesn't make that cut for me so that's where I stand in it whilst I would say if you're into it, definitely listen to it. Boo.
2: <laughs> I would I would say uh, go and listen to Who Will Survive and What Will Be Left of Them by Murder by Death, which came out the same year and didn't have the marketing this that this record did and uh wasn't as cool as this record, but maybe has better songs on it. Boo. <laughs> I understand Mark, but I'm not I'm I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: <Boo. laughs> Alright Mark. I mean, you give it your best shot Well, you know Hey, it may well get voted in It may be, I mean, I think I think our listeners probably will vote this in If they like emo Emo guys are loyal Just not to the girlfriend If you like
2: this record yeah. 17 years ago Then you'll probably vote it in <laughs>
0: I'll have you know that I turned <laughs> a job with <of> gangsters lately <laughs> My morals are you fine did. Yeah, you did But you're not an emo
1: anymore I'm not. You're man. You're man of the world. <laughs> I'm just a man. Just a man uh, of the world. <laughs> so, it's Nexus time. It's and Nexus time. There's something pretty special in the tank.
2: This? The, this is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this, this for us? Is not good. Well, Mark, you go first, seeing as it's your record. Um, who? <laughs> <laughs> I believe it was.
1: It was uh, I, I wrote down how to say it. Kenny Benella no,
2: wrote this, mm-hmm. and it is Jamaluddin Abdujaparov. Is that correct, Chris? Uh,
1: Jamaluddin. Jamaluddin. Abdujaparov. Abdujaparov. So, Jamaluddin Abdujaparov. AKA the Tashkent Terror. Yep. <laughs> Cyclist. Oh, cyclist. Uzbek. Uzbekistan Yeah. Uzbek yeah. Uh, cyclist who yeah Mark
0: I won't spoil your ending I know where you're going with it, so <laughs> go for it <laughs> really? okay um, so this album was produced by Mike Moggis um, he used to play for Cursive as well, way back in the early days. Um, he also plays for She and Him, which is a sort of kind of country indie duo featuring M Ward and Zoe Deschanel. Uh, Zoe Deschanel is an actress, and is perhaps most well known for her time in New Girl. She's also been in a whole bunch of films. She's just she's just a set of bangs. Just a set of bangs, yeah. Um, in season six, episode four of New Girl, they actually have a very brief crossover with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, in which Jess finds, her, finds herself in a weird situation whilst she's driving in New York and ends up bumping into Jake Peralta, who's played by Andy Samberg. Andy is a really good actor. He's actually in a film just now called Palm Springs, which I, I, I recommend if you haven't seen it. It's, it's a good film. It's kind of, a, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, he actually pluralise it. What? Groundhog's Day. Groundhog's Day. <laughs> Groundhog's Day. Yeah, because there's more than one day. <laughs> but he, an attorney's general, attorney's general. Yes, that's well, that's more than an attorney general, to be fair. It's <laughs> like so, a party of attorneys or attorney generals. I um Anyway, um, he recently appeared well, a few years ago. He appeared on a Netflix special called Tour de Pharmacy which is a mockumentary about doping at the Tour de France in 1982. This didn't actually happen, but a short synopsis of the film is that Samberg plays a Nigerian rider who is one of only four riders in the Tour de France that year because everyone else who was caught doping was also caught paying off the president of the International Cycling Union and we're all thus banned from the tournament. It has John Cena playing an Austrian in it and he's amazing. Highly recommend it. It's on Netflix, only about 40 minutes long. Um, Lance Armstrong actually appears in the documentary as an outs- uh, in the mockumentary sorry, as an outside observer about the incident and he wishes to remain not anonymous for the whole film but obviously the joke is they fuck up making him anonymous so you, you know quite clearly that it's Lance Armstrong talking about doping which didn't go down very well with some critics as people probably know Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France seven times but he was stripped of all of his titles due to doping um, he won his fourth title in 1999 And that was one year after the Fistina affair, which was another doping scandal that involved a bunch of riders from two teams in 1998. And I don't know if you guys know, but uh, the Tour de France has a a very big history of doping. (laughs) It's like 60 odd years worth of it. But this particular scandal happened when judges found banned substances on the Fistina team, including growth hormones and testosterone. The trial focused on amphetamines who, that was used by some of the team and EPO, which is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, it's an enzyme that's created by your kidneys when you're in response to what's called cellular hypoxia, which is when red blood cells are produced by the kidneys in response to an adequate blood supply. They create more so that you can, so your blood supply can go faster. And They actually were used looking for a usage of the human-made EPO, which is called RH-EPO. After the Fistina team were tested, they then tested the TVM team. Uh, but the most interesting thing about this is that this trial actually also brought into effect testing for blood doping transfusions which is one of the things that got Lance Armstrong stripped tri- of his titles somebody who was later retrospectively involved in the Fistina affair was Laurent, 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 Laurent Jalaber mm-hmm. um, he wasn't immediately implicated in it but they did a, after the trial in 2004 they did a retrospective test of 60, 60 rider samples and he was found to have taken EPO as well um, Jalaber is one of only five riders to win points classifications in all three Grand Tours the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia and the Voluta Espana the others are Alessandro Precci Eddie Marks, Eddie Merksix Mark Cavendish and of course Becky Man.
3: <laughs> you've got to say his name
0: I <laughs> don't know how to say his name
1: <laughs> that guy but can we just pause a moment to reflect on how fucking shite cycling is? Yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, cycling is fine if you need to get around, okay. But see, if you sit and watch cycling, Fuck. fucking kill yourself.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's literally superhuman what they do because it's physically not possible because they're all on huge amounts of drugs. <laughs> on drugs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's also, but it's
1: also superhuman and boring. Yeah, but you get nice views of the Alps. And their like That's what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> you go next for that because uh, mine's a piece.
2: All right. I've managed to do a quick one actually. Uh, Cursive in 2004 toured with The Cure. Uh, the Cure in 1993 played in Finsbury Park with Belly and Sugar and Catherine Wheel. It was a festival thing called Great Expectations. And yeah, The Cure headlined. And Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, were second headliners.
1: Oh yeah, Carter USM.
2: So yeah, Carter USM. Um, one member of Carter USM is Les Carter, who lives in Folkestone. And he also plays in a band called Abdujaparov. And they are named after Jamaluddin Abdujarapov. Jab, uh,
1: jab, Jab, Jab. <laughs> that guy. That guy. <laughs> the, the guy from that is, Uzbekistan. Stan. That is a very tidy, well-formed nexus you've got there. Yes. I like it. Mine is not like that. Okay, let's get torn through this, okay? Uh, Cursive merged to a band called Symbols Eat Guitars to make a band called Cursive Eat Guitars to cover a track called Hey Jealousy by a band called The Gin Blossoms for the AV Club's undercover series, which featured, I think, 25 different cover versions and included also Ben Folds covering Elliot Smith's Say Yes. Ben Folds both co-wrote and produced, the album has been by Mr William Shatner that was released in 2004, (laughs) featuring a whole host of great people on it, but we're not going to go down that route Uh, William Shatner was Captain Kirk as we all know in the series Star Trek written by Gene Roddenberry Uh, when discussing and I guess defending (laughs) star trek gene roddenberry used uh, the drake equation to try and justify the sheer number of alien civilizations Uh, however gene roddenberry also misquoted the drake equation and kind of he didn't have it to hand so the version he ended up using was just totally fanny together by him (laughs) Uh, the drake equation was written by frank drake in 1961 and it's basically about the number of alien civilizations uh, that are likely to exist in our galaxy. Um, I love that fact. Not, I love that fact, by the way. It's not actually intended to calculate the number of alien civilizations, mm. though. It, it was more devised to stimulate discussion at the very first ever SETI Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence mm. uh, meeting. The lowest estimates, according to the Drake equation, uh which kind of use the more skeptical values including things like the rare earth hypothesis uh, come out at ten to the negative uh, thirteen <laughs> power wise, so we're very very probably alone uh, but the highest estimates um the the figure that tends to get bandied about is that fifteen million six hundred thousand intelligent species in the Milky Way galaxy uh, although that has a variance of a factor of a hundred so a hundred more or a hundred less times less. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, So it's quite a a big boundary on that. Um, The Drake Equation then led to the Kardashev Scale in 1964, which was by a guy called Nikolai Kardashev. And that's to do with the number of hypothetical civilizations that qualify as one, two, or three. One being a civilization that can utilize the energy of its planet, two being the energy of the solar system, and three being a civilization that can utilize the energy of its galaxy and therefore has unbelievable amounts of energy at its disposal and is therefore probably capable of doing magnificent, enormous, unimaginably huge things. Um, and so that's all to try and gauge the sort of intelligence, sophistication and power mastery of these civilizations. Anyway, so the Kardashev scale leads to the Fermi paradox. The Fermi paradox was devised by Enrico Fermi and it's really there to discuss is alien life likely if we haven't encountered it, which kind has a lot in common with the kind of time-traveller paradox is if time travel is possible, why have we never met a time-traveller? Um, now, the Fermi paradox leads on to the Great Filter Theory. Um, the Great Filter Theory has become relevant recently. The Great Filter Theory basically says that the, the easier it is for life to propagate and potentially evolve, the worse it actually bodes for humanity. Because if life is easy and yet hasn't evolved to a certain stage and contacted us, then there's probably something called the Great Filter, which could be in our past or could be in our future, which restricts that evolution. Um, Now, the recent discovery of pH 3 or phosphine gas on Venus suggested that there could be life on Venus in in the atmosphere. That is a big problem in the sense of the Great Filter theory, because we're looking at the prospect of there possibly being life on Mars, or at least the history of life on mars history of possible life on venus if life is that easy and yet we've never encountered life then the great filter theory starts to look pretty daunting because it says maybe there's a very 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 high chance that like evolved civilization overextends itself in every different situation
2: well i mean Um, look out the window
1: (laughs) i mean that seems very reasonable (laughs) super well illustrated yeah by people's refusal to wear masks or even acknowledge global warming properly um the Venus is the place that they discovered phosphine gas. Uh, the surface of Venus is 408 degrees centigrade. So, vaporized minerals, for example, condense at the top of some of the colder mountains and actually you get metal snow and frost as a result. Uh, and more relevant to us, craters on Venus are named after the wives of a character from a famous Russian, inverted commas, western, a sort of like Russian cowboy film almost, called White Son of the Desert. And the wives were married to a character called Abdullah, who's the main villain in in that film. And because of his appearance, Abdullah was actually the derogatory nickname uh, people used to use for Jamaluddin Abdujaparov.
0: Well, there you are. There we are. Pulling out of the bag <laughs> it it, last to, night.
1: To, Literally
2: to the edge of the galaxy and back. Well, thanks <laughs> for that. Uh, can I, ju- I just want to mention, because you, you kind of went there, I would recommend... It's on Netflix right now. I think it's only like 15-20 minutes long but a wee documentary called John was trying to contact aliens and it's very gentle, sort of follows a guy who basically set up a radio station in his grandma's house uh, broadcasting to outer space because he just wanted to try and see if there was anybody out there and if so, he wanted to play them some good music. Yeah, I'd recommend to all listeners that you should go and watch that on Netflix because it's just bloody lovely. (laughs) Yeah, it looks good. Oh, well, you thanks good. for that. Yeah,
1: thank you. You're welcome. That's bit of skilling.
2: Well, we went round all the houses there. We uh, did. So go to Facebook and vote whether a uh, cursive
0: ugly organ should be on it or not. Um and just, to, just to say that we we're having trouble with the polls on Facebook just now. Um, so that is the actual Bloody polling making. The actual oh, polling make- <laughs> <laughs> not, not, <laughs> not the country. Steady on. <laughs> so please... Uh, click through to our website and, and vote on there because there's so few people voting because it's not on Facebook so you have to actually go on the website it might take a wee second to load the poll but please go and do that thank you uh, so next week what are we doing? next week we
1: are going to do The Eraser by Tom York wow Ooh. okay interesting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and doing Nexus. that noise means we're going to remember to choose our Nexus live on air this time or well live on recording so we will be nexusing Tom York to Lee Atwater great no idea who that is <laughs> uh, you, you're, you're going to have a fun time looking at that one um, But chosen by Corey Stewart thanks Corey, thanks, Corey. Uh, I, I for one love delving into American politics <laughs> so Lee Fantastic. Atwater to Tom York next week don't miss it thrilling All right. Well, that was a pleasure. Please get yourselves onto the polls and please get yourself onto our Patreon as well if you haven't subscribed because you'll get the episodes earlier and you'll get bonus stuff. And we have some cool new ideas that we're probably going to announce at least one or two of them next week. And you won't know that unless you're part of the inner clique. Great. Ciao. Ciao.